When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this show... We predict some potential surprises for 2017. The inflationary expectations generated by the Trump victory might have expected you to think that gold would rise. In fact, it's fallen. And wither capitalism, our outgoing Schumpeter columnist, weighs in. But also I think that what happened in 2009 is still something that haunts us and something we haven't escaped from. But first, the Christmas holidays used to be the retail industry's boom time. But can they still depend on the traditional end-of-year spike in sales? Here with me to discuss this is our correspondent, Doug Dowson, who's been looking at the numbers. Doug, is it still true? Is the Christmas period still when the retail industry really makes its money? Uh, Yes, so that's definitely true. Retailers uh, earn a big chunk of their sales during the holiday season. But if you actually look at the long-term figures, you'll see that the increase in sales that they earn the month of December and to a lesser extent in November, is actually much smaller than it used to be. So in America, retailers earned about 30% more in the month of December uh, than they would have without that seasonal effect. And uh, in 2015, uh, that figure had declined from 30% to about 20%. So what's going on? Are we losing the Christmas spirit? Are are children getting fewer presents? I, I don't think so. I think... You know, I heard a couple of different theories from the folks I spoke to. One popular uh, hypothesis is that with the rise of e-commerce, a lot of the products that used to be seasonal and only available in the holiday months are now available year-round and often at a better price. So consumers can sort of distribute their purchases more evenly throughout the year. Another theory I heard was that young shoppers are increasingly interested in buying experiential gifts as opposed to tangible gifts like you know, clothing or, or tech products. So instead of buying some pajamas for your parents, you might buy them you know, tickets to a concert, something like that. You seem to be suggesting that shoppers have got much more organized than I, for example, am, and are thinking, in ahead, thinking ahead and buying online well, well in advance of the holidays themselves. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, e-commerce came about about around the mid-90s, and that actually coincides with when this this change occurred for this seasonal effect. So mid-90s was when we saw about a 30% bump in December, and since then it's declined pretty steadily. What about for e-commerce itself as a whole? Does that have a spike in December? Yeah, so what we see is that that spike has actually increased, which kind of makes sense because shoppers a lot of times want to you know go through their shopping list. A lot of times these products are fairly easy to find. They're not unique. They're sort of commoditized products. And online retailers are very helpful for these kind of shopping. And another thing that's helpful for lazy shoppers like me are, are gift cards, book tokens, and so on. Do they have an impact in this? Yeah, so that's actually one of the main reasons, I think, why this decline in uh, seasonal sales is happening. So, you know, when you buy a gift card, 
the retailer doesn't actually earn that money. It doesn't actually get recorded at sales when you purchase it. It only gets recorded at sales when it's actually redeemed by the receiver. So if you receive a gift card and you don't use it until January or February or even later, those sales aren't going to be recorded uh, when they were actually purchased, but later on in the year. Doug Dawson, thank you. What do you think? Is Christmas cheer on the decline? Or are shoppers learning to play retailers at their own game? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Next, 2016 was a year of dramatic ups and downs in the financial world. In our Christmas edition, we look ahead to a new year, which will see a Trump presidency and pivotal elections in France and Germany. With me to see what this might mean for the markets is Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist. Phil, as the year is ending, we're seeing a surge in American equities, markets looking generally healthy and optimistic. What might surprise us in the coming year? Well, surprises always come when the consensus is disappointed. So as you say, since the presidential election, markets have decided that a Trump presidency will mean a big fiscal stimulus, a recovery in the US economy, uh, and therefore a little bit higher inflation. And so they've piled into equities and out of government bonds. So we've seen share prices go up and bond yields go up as well. So if we're looking forward to 2017, we have to say the biggest surprise will be if all that good news is priced in and the markets are disappointed. And history suggests that a fiscal stimulus takes time to work on the economy. All of it might not be passed by a Republican Congress, particularly on the spending side. Uh, And indeed, we've seen in uh, Japan that 20 years of various stimulus methods haven't got that economy out of its rut. So it could be that equities are a bit disappointing, particularly if the Fed uh, carries on raising interest rates, as it indicated it would in the recent meeting. If the dollar is very strong, which will um, reduce the US value of overseas profits for American companies, which already trade on a, a very high valuation in historical terms. So one disappointment, one surprise will be equities won't do that well. And in contrast, government bonds might do a bit better than people think because they've already moved so fast in terms of pushing the bond yield up uh, that perhaps they've reached the top of the range. And what about Europe? The the Eurozone things have been gloomy for for years now. Can we expect that to continue? I think there the surprise may be some good news. So the dog that doesn't bark. If you look at the polls of fund managers, they now see an EU breakup as the biggest risk. But that presupposes that you get a continuation of populist victories in the European elections. But maybe uh, Marine Le Pen doesn't win the presidency in France. Maybe Angela Merkel is re-elected as Chancellor of Germany, in which case in the course of the year, Europe might seem relatively stable uh, and all the political action might be in Asia, where, of course, there's a uh, sort of ongoing battle of words between the US and China already, even before Donald Trump's actually um, taken the oath of office. And the European economy is expected to grow 1.5-1.6% next year. That's perfectly respectable. So perhaps the EU won't break up and perhaps European equities won't look quite the disappointment that many fund managers have marked them out as. It's Christmas, so should we look at one of the wise men's gifts? Gold. We've seen it fall quite sharply, in fact, since the election of Donald Trump. Is it it a sell now? Well, in one way, it's very difficult ever to predict the right value for gold. It doesn't have a yield. Uh, It's bought often by people who have quite sort of unorthodox views who, you know, like to use it as a sort of uh, survivalist guide. Uh, And it had this huge rally 
in the 2000s, which took it all the way up to $1,800, $1,900 an ounce since when it's fallen. Now, the inflationary expectations generated by the Trump victory might have expected you to think that gold would rise. In fact, it's fallen. And it's fallen, I think, because it's seen as a straight alternative to the dollar. If the dollar is up, then gold goes down. But if you go back to the idea that we will have political risk in 2017, that we will have regular Twitter spats between Donald Trump and China or any other nation that annoys him, or if they, for example, try to undo the Iran deal and that gives another uh, upward twist to uh, Middle East tensions, then those are the kind of conditions that gold does quite well. So while we don't make any investment recommendations, it would be surprising if in the course of 2017, gold doesn't have the odd moment where it does quite well uh, when we are worried about what the geopolitical outlook will be. Philip Coggan, thank you very much. That was Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist. If you're interested in hearing more predictions and prophecies for the 12 months to come, don't miss our World in 2017 specials, coming out every Thursday between now and the new year. Finally now, in 2009 we launched a business column named after the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter. In our Christmas edition, Schumpeter's outgoing author takes on the ghosts of capitalism past, present and future. Adrian Waldridge, that author, is with me now. Adrian, when you launched the column, it was in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Things still looked pretty grim. As you're leaving, markets are booming. A new sort of optimism seems to have taken hold, particularly in America. Is that how you see the world? Not at all. Um, Partly out of perversity, I think partly out of age, I'm getting more pessimistic. And I do think that things are not as happy uh, as you think. Yes, it's true that the American stock market is booming. Yes, it's true that the Fed has now raised interest rates because the economy is beginning to grow. But there are lots of very dismal signs on the horizon. We have just elected in, in Donald Trump, a man who is very much out of the norm in terms of presidential politicians. Britain has voted for Brexit. There is a tide of populism washing across the world, which I think is bad for the economy. But also, I think that what happened in 2009 is still something that haunts us and something we hasn't escaped from. One of the reasons I was relatively optimistic in 2009 was I thought it was such a shock to the system that we do various things that would repair the system. I don't think we've done that. I don't think we've seriously addressed the problem of inequality. I don't think we've seriously addressed the problem of the fragility of the financial sector. We've done a bit, but we haven't created enough capital buffers. So I think we could easily have another crisis. But underneath it all, I think we have a problem with the decline in the rate of growth of productivity, which has been around since the late 1970s, has been getting worse. And I think underneath that, underneath what's happening now with the euphoria on the markets, is a slowdown in productivity growth, disappointing productivity growth, which is really means that politics and society is about people competing for fixed resources. And as long as people are competing for fixed resources, the politics of animosity is going to be uh, at the forefront. In your final column, you make the point that the master, as you call him, Schumpeter himself, uh, later in life got very gloomy himself. Was he gloomy about the same sorts of things? Well, Schumpeter was gloomy about the possibility of capitalism surviving. He says in his great book, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, which was published in 1942, that he doesn't think that capitalism can survive. He thinks it's becoming too bureaucratic. He thinks that government is becoming too big. He thinks that the spirit of entrepreneurial recreation of creative destruction is being killed and that 
society would be replaced by socialism. Now, I think it'd be wrong to think that we'll get socialism. Socialism has been tried in the Soviet Union and has failed. Capitalism is roaring ahead in the emerging world. But I think in the rich world, the problems that Schumpeter saw are still here. And they are the decline in the rate of creative destruction, the fact that big companies are getting bigger, stodgier, more bureaucratic, while small companies are not being started. Uh, and the fact that productivity is so disappointing, all of those things are haunting us. So I think that the book published in 1942 is an amazing statement about what's wrong with capitalism today. Isn't there a bit of circularity there? You say that the root of the problem is the lack of growth in productivity, but on the other hand, productivity is not growing because companies are getting bigger. Sometimes big companies can actually be great generators of economic growth. But what you get is that big companies become in cahoots with big government and big regulation. So, you know, Google is a great company. I think Amazon is certainly a great company and they're driving a lot of productivity growth. But in the economy as a whole, I think that growth is slowing down because government is too big, regulation is too big, and also because of extraneous factors such as the ageing of the population. So um, I, d- I think there are signs of hope in the, in the, in the tech sector, but I think the, the negative signs, the signs weighing against that are appalling. And because we've got this um, increasing stagnation, we've got populism. And what you tend to get with populism is that populism tries to address the problems of stagnation, tries to address the problems of people's frustrations. And in the short term, it can succeed. I think that, you know, Trump may have a certain amount of success with his infrastructure projects. It may even be the case that we get a certain amount of short term success by withdrawing from the euro and cutting uh, from, from, from the European Union and cutting, cutting corporate taxes and things like that. But they tend to be like short-term gains. And because you create a, an environment of, uh, of uncertainty and confusion, business tends not to invest in the, in, in the long term. So I can see a future in which we get some spurts of growth followed by, followed by collapses. So you see the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump not as the climax of some trend, but as a way just as, as the beginning of a trend towards more populism in more places. Absolutely. The optimistic position is that this is the end of something and it's the end of the the, 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 the great recession that started in, in 2008 and that we're beginning to lift ourselves out of that. I don't think that's the case because I'm not seeing any, any, any change in the underlying productivity numbers. So I think it's the, the, the beginning of a long process. And we could have um, Marine Le Pen winning in France next year, in which case the European Union is very much in the oxygen tent. We have Merkel obviously visibly weakened by the um, what happened in the Christmas market. We're going to have a series of, of, of problems. And the underlying thing is that politics, when it's about growth, when productivity is growing up, when there's more stuff to distribute to people, when it's no longer a zero-sum game, is essentially an optimistic business. And that's what it was under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and under, under Bill Clinton. What it is when you have a stagnant economy is a world in which people are competing for fixed resources. That's a pessimistic business. It's a zero-sum game, and it tends to set interest group against interest group. And what we have done in the last decade and a half is to inject a huge number of immigrants, unassimilated immigrants, into, into the population. And so that add adds a new element to all of that. So we have sectional interests, trade unions, uh, working groups uh, competing against each other. But we also have thrown into this a very significant number of immigrants, some of them not assimilated, some of them very discontented, uh, and various terrorist incidents thrown in. And I think that creates an extremely uh, dangerous brew, which does, to me, bring to mind the 1930s. Adrian Waldridge, thank you. 
And on that note of seasonal uncheer, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. (laughs) 